I don't need to be the lowest rate all the time, but I know if I'm out of the market, generally speaking, if I price high, when that guy's not going to call me back. And that's another way to handle it. Oh, that's really clever. It's kind of like when a contractor who's so busy is like, I'm only going to do this for you if it's, the price is like worth it. And you know, they, how they'll sometimes quote you high when they don't want to do the job. Just like, I really hope he says no. <laughs> and if he does say Absolutely. yes, well, yeah, I hope he well, says no, here's a price is ridiculous. But if he does it well, then, you know, I can't find it. worth it. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today on the show of Dave LaRock. Dave is one of these guests that I have back several times a year because he's one of the most well-read and respected people in the country on understanding interest rates, how the economy works, and he can talk about it in a way that is understandable, which is awesome. So he's a top producing mortgage broker in Ontario. And in this episode, we talk about three big things. One, we talk about how to handle lenders with great rates, but terrible and slow turnaround times just because of volumes. So how does he navigate that? We talk about what's up with interest rates. Are they going up, down? What is his predictions? And then I asked him about, will rising rates lower the housing market? So if rates do go up, what's the effect that they have on the housing market? I always feel like when I have a conversation with Dave, my IQ goes up. It's temporary, of course. I get like a five or 10 IQ point bump. And then a day or two later, it's back down to where it was. So hopefully you find this as interesting as I did in this conversation with Dave. In the Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Paul Campbell about the No Doc program. And so this is a pretty cool program from Magenta. Check that out. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. So Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform that is incredibly easy to use for the borrower. It's got smart docs. So as they're filling out the application, it's figuring out what they need to get. When you go to submit that file, it also has the ability to search Lender Spotlight, which has all the lender guidelines, rates, and you can look at them and be like, where should this file go? And then when you go to hit submit, it's got something called Smart Submission, which pulls details from the application into the submission notes, because as you probably know, every lender has a different backend portal. And so what they see is different than what we see. And so it's important that we communicate to them sort of the high level points of the file, and this makes it easy. So the whole point is just to get more files done quicker. Check out finmo.ca and check out this conversation I have with Dave. Hey, Dave, welcome back to the show. Hi, Scott. So, hey, man, I always love coming on chat with you about interest rates, everything that's kind of going on. I got a couple different topics today that I'd like to jump into, and we're going to talk about interest rates. But before we do, obviously, rates has changed a lot in the last little bit. And one of the things that I'm hearing is, is that we have some lenders that have great rates, but the turnaround time and service is slow. So talk to me about that. I guess what I'm interested to know is, do you still use the lender even if the rates are low, but the turnaround time is prolonged or that's more challenging? And how do you set expectations with a client so that it's like, hey, we're not going to have an answer for you know multiple weeks? I'm curious on these things. Well, I always want to get the best deal for the client. So if the turnaround time is slow, but we have time to work with, and a lot of times, for example, on a purchase, you've got 60 to 90 days, so you do have the time, I will generally still source the best rate with the best combination of terms and conditions on top. But there are limits to the pain that I can withstand as there are. Everybody has a pain tolerance. It's like, no, I'm tapping. I'm out. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, and there's definitely a point with some lenders, one in particular who will remain nameless, where I've just had enough. I can't take the waiting. And, you know, quite frankly, I would rather lose the business than put up with the stress of trying to interact with them at this point. As far as the way to handle clients, I mean, communication is always the key. You don't want your clients nervously wondering why they haven't heard from you. So it's important to, number one, manage the expectation up front. 
and talk about the fact that the rate is attractive, the terms and conditions are great. This is why I think this is the right solution for you. And because the lender has an attractive product in the market and it's priced well, they're getting a lot of interest from the market and it's generated a lot of volume and they're slammed right now. And you kind of position it as the reason we have to wait is because you're getting- Yeah, it's like, hey, it's a movie that's really everybody wants to go see. So it's going to be, you're going to have to wait in line. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, because if you don't say stuff like that, if you don't manage client expectations, then the risk you run is that they're like, well, is this really a lender that we're wise to be borrowing from if they can't even get us an approval back? So you really have to be careful up front to manage it. And, you know, again, you don't have to apologize for market conditions. You want to set the expectation. The other thing I do, borrowers usually when they've bought a house or they've agreed to go ahead with a certain mortgage option, they want to get going. And you lose a lot of momentum if it takes a week or two to hear back from the lender, and then you got to chase them down and start getting docs and whatnot. So we like to keep clients busy right from the get-go. So if you know it's going to be a week or two before you hear from the lender, chances are you know what docs the lender is going to ask for. If the borrowers are keen at that point to start sending you docs and get the ball rolling, send out the list of what you know the lender is going to ask for and get the borrowers busy doing other stuff with the file so it feels to them like things are still happening. The other advantage then is that when the lender does finally get the commitment back to you, other than the appraisal and the signed documents, a lot of the other stuff is pretty much done and it's a lot less work thereafter. So again, keeping your clients busy on the file when they're keen to get at it, gets you the docs up front and also keeps them busy so they're not thinking about why it's taking so long to get their approval back. Right. Okay. So a couple questions on that. So you said on a purchase that's 30 to 60 days out, is there a deadline where you would be like, we're not doing this? Like, do you have like a internal rule for yourself about a compressed timeline? Somebody shows up and says, Hey, can you close this in 10 days? Would you take that file? I guess would be my first question. And then B, how would you handle it differently? Well, sure. I mean, I'm always going to take the file and I work enough with enough lenders that somebody will do me a favor because I send them good business and I close what I send. So I can get the deal done in a pretty tight timeline, but I definitely will factor in turnaround time. There are certain lenders where if somebody calls me today and says, I need to close in three weeks, can you do it? I will tell them, here's the lay of the land. Right now, this is the best rate. And if you had 60 days, this is the lender I'd be recommending. But there is absolutely no chance that we can get this deal approved and ready in the next three weeks with that lender. And as a result, uh, if you want to work with me, this is the best I can offer you. And that way, you know, people are sometimes reluctant to be candid in their assessment of market conditions. I think people understand when they're coming to you last minute and they need a rush, that they may not get the best rate in the market. And when you explain to them, it's not that I don't have that rate, it's that I can't offer it to you because if I try, it may well end in heartbreak and you might not get your mortgage on time and you might not close and get your house. And as a result of not having enough time, we need to go with a lender that I know will close but it has a rate that's a bit higher. And I've never had pushback from clients in that scenario. They trust me enough to know market conditions. And at the end of the day, they don't want to risk not getting their financing. So I lay it out. I say, here's the best rate I would be offering you if you go to my website. Right. So uh, basically, you just be transparent. People explain to them what's going on. And then that way, you're not having to like, you don't have to sell against yourself. Because really, the clients put themselves in this position. Do you have a no-go list? So do you have like certain types of files that you're just like, nope, not going to do not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. I remember George Bush, right? I can't do a George Bush predestination, but that would be my best version of it. Um, So do you have a no-go list? And if so, what would be on that list of things that you're like, this is not a file that I'm going to take? Not really. I mean, 
I wrote a post on co-ops and co-ownerships a while back. It's actually the first result on Google. So I get a lot of calls from people about those deals, but we have to charge a fee. The co-op and co-ownership lenders don't pass a commission directly. And a lot of times when you have the fee discussion, they end up going to the credit unions that do the co-ops themselves and dealing with them directly. So when people call me on a co-op or a co-ownership, we offer them the choice. We say, we're happy to work with you. You know, this is our fee if you want to work with us. But these are the names of the three lenders that we would be sending your deal to. And if you want to call and deal with them directly, that's your choice. We just don't want to waste any time. I mean, at the end of the so day- So then really, you don't say no, but by doing that, effectively saying no, because they're going to be like, for the most part, people are going to go try themselves, right? Right. There are always different ways to say no. For example, once in a while- you get a call from a client. And let's be honest, some people are just a pain in the ass. It's not very often. It's rare. I feel very lucky in the clients that I get for the most part. Probably because you have good clients that are referring you for the most part. So you actually are just attracting more and more of the same. But sorry, go on about a client that's a pain in the ass. I think that's a good point, Scott. When I started out in this business, I took all comers and there were some people that wasted my time. That was 11 years ago. And quite frankly, I learned from having done that. So it was still time well spent. But yeah, I've I've reached a point in my career where I think the momentum is helping at this point. But I had a guy call me a couple of weeks ago. It was a dad. He was buying a property with his son. He was going to co-sign with him. The dad owned four properties. He was self-employed. His income, it was reporting, was quite low. We were going to be really tight on the ratios. The mortgage was about 225 grand. He just kept calling and emailing. And the whole time, he's, what's your rate? What's your rate? I could tell he was calling around, shopping around. And again, he owned four other properties. So there's going to be a lot of paperwork involved. And again, I will do a $100,000 mortgage for a client, no problem. At the end of the day, I think sometimes the universe tests us with deals like that to see if we still will do a good job for those clients and honor our reputation. I always think those clients are just as likely to send me referrals as any other client. So to me, it's not the transaction that matters. It's the referral source. But if I get a guy who I just feel like is going to grind me and, you know, once in a blue moon for that guy, I just quoted him a rate that was higher than market. And I knew, you know, I was polite the whole time. But I knew that this guy was going to call somebody else because the rate I was offering wasn't going to be the best available. And I didn't try to give him the hard sell of why I was the guy you should be dealing with regardless. I don't need to be the lowest rate all the time, but I know if I'm out of the market, generally speaking, if I price high, when that guy's not going to call me back. And that's another way to handle it. Oh, that's really clever. It's kind of like when a contractor who's so busy is like, I'm only going to do this for you if it's, the price is like worth it. And you know they, how they'll sometimes quote you high when they don't want to do the job. Just like, I really hope he says no. And if he does say Absolutely. yes, well, yeah, I hope he well, says no. Here's a price is ridiculous. But if he does it well, then, you know, I can find it's out. Worth it. It's worth yeah. it. If someone's going to be a pain in the ass, but you can make a lot more money on the deal, then yeah, maybe it is worth it. And again, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, that was once in 50 deals. It doesn't happen often. And, right. and we really do try to work with clients. And to me, by the way, a pain in the ass client is not someone who asks a lot of questions and wants to geek out in terms of conditions. I love those clients because that's where I yeah, demonstrate yeah. my knowledge. And I really respect the fact that people want to do a deep dive and really understand what it is they're signing. The guys who are a pain in the butt are all, what's your rate? What's your rate? What's your rate? And it's all about about extracting as much information from me as they can without making any kind of commitment to me and basically wasting my time. And those are the guys that I've learned to see coming in the years I've been in the business, as all brokers do. And, you know, there are polite ways to work it so that they stop calling you and they go waste someone else's time. (laughs) Right. So basically somebody with high expectations and low loyalty is like, 
Yeah. You know, you got high, really high expectations, but they got no loan. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to find someone else. It's not about the mortgage balance or anything else. It's more about their expectations are high and their loyalty is low. So, like, why bother? Honestly. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't mind high expectations, but to me, if they have no loyalty. But then high loyalty with it. Yeah. If I'm helping a guy and answering all his questions and he's taking a lot of my time and it, it works invariably, these guys want to talk to me in the evenings or on the weekends. Or, you know, there's a premium on my time outside of office hours and I give it to people. But when that's what they want in droves and I'm sensing it's not building any loyalty with them, then that's a point where I just say, you know, my time's worth a lot. And if that borrower isn't valuing it, then um, there are ways to divert them in other directions. Okay, awesome. This has been very helpful. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about interest rates. So tell me about what do you see is happening with interest rates? What do you see has been happening and where do you think we're going? Well, as far as interest rates go, I think we have to split the current timeline in two, pre-Ukraine and post-Ukraine. Leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the picture was starting to look pretty good, I thought, for mortgage rates. The supply constraints that had been pushing up prices, primarily pushing up prices, had started to ease. There were some early signs that we were going to see prices start to fall in the next few months, encouraging signs. A lot of the people making the aggressive inflation arguments saying that the Bank of Canada and the Fed were going to start really hiking rates rapidly, the guys who said we'd need six or seven quarter point increases, their argument was essentially centered on the fact that prices would continue to rise and wages would have to rise in response, that we'd get a wage price spiral like we saw in the 70s. And interestingly, last month, we had a robust U.S. employment report. Average wages only rose by 3.1%. A counterargument to the view that wages were really going to start to take off. And by the way, that would have underpinned a real uptick in inflation. That would have meant inflation would have been stickier, lasted longer, and required more rate hikes. But the counterargument that I subscribed to was that the reason why people were holding out on um, going back to work wasn't because they were demanding better wages and, you know, they called it the great resignation because they wanted a better life. Who doesn't want that? Um, Because they've been paid a lot of money through the emergency stimulus programs. This is especially in the U.S., and they hadn't yet burned through their savings. So who wants to go back to a crappy job they don't like when you've got lots of money in the bank and can afford to wait? The prediction was those programs ended in the U.S. in October of last year. Some ended sooner, but the federal stop date was last October. It took a few months for people to burn through their reserves. And then in January and February, they started returning to work in droves. And employers didn't have to massively hike wages or raise their labor costs in order to make that happen. It happened on its own. So that, too, was an encouraging sign. Prices starting to ease and wages staying contained. And all of that pointed to fewer hikes by the Bank of Canada and the Fed than the market was pricing in. And again, as for the hikes themselves, I continue to subscribe to the belief that with record debt levels outstanding, certainly in Canada, we'll need less hikes than we normally do because the impact of each rate hike will be magnified. And I continue to subscribe to that belief. Now, then Ukraine happened. Then, okay, yeah. So now all that to say, what's shifted based on sort of this whole Ukraine thing? Well, the challenge we've got with Ukraine is, and please, I'm going to focus on the economic impacts, but I don't want to be insensitive to the fact that this is first and foremost a horrible example of human suffering and an unprovoked criminal attack on the Ukrainian people. Let me say that first. And now back to our topic, which is economics and mortgage rates. The major economic implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine are twofold. Number one, Ukraine can't export its wheat, and they're a huge wheat exporter, and nor can they export their energy. And the world is now sanctioning Russia, and Russia can't export its wheat or its natural gas or its oil. So what's happening? Natural gas 
oil prices, wheat prices through the roof, up by 30%. Now, food and gas prices are volatile, and a lot of times central bankers look through those price swings in energy and food particularly because they are so volatile. But here's the thing. We don't know yet how long the sanctions against Russia will last. If they're short-lived, then ultimately the impact of the Ukraine war will be short-term and it won't have a long-term impact on rates. But if Russia becomes a pariah state and the sanctions last a long time, then those price increases aren't going away. And I don't think the Bank Canada or the Fed can look through them. I think they have to account for the fact that those prices are going to be high for a long time. And even though we'll see price softening in other areas, because the supply bottlenecks are easing. If the price of oil and the price of wheat, the price of natural gas and things like nickel stay high, those costs pervade throughout the economy. Wheat prices, you know, we're not just talking the cost of grains here for the food that humans eat. Wheat prices affect the cost to feed livestock. So we're talking a very broad impact. Wheat is a pervasive food cost for all kinds of other inputs. The price of oil affects production costs, transportation costs, heating costs, you name it. The one thing I'd say, though, is when food and oil prices go up, we have to be able to eat and we have to be able to heat. So if you have to spend more money on food and fuel, you have less money to spend on other things. So in a way, if the Bank of Canada says we've got to hike rates to slow demand, because food and energy prices are so high, the fact that food and energy prices are high will take away demand on its own because when people have to spend more money on those things, they have less of it to spend on other things. So there's a natural form of demand destruction that happens when food and energy prices go up because they're so fundamental to living that they do take money away and reduce consumer spending in other areas and they do put downward pressure on demand. So how will the rate hikes be affected by Ukraine? We don't know yet. There are times when you can take a pretty good guess, I think, when you do your research and you can offer a pretty smart opinion that may end up being right or wrong. But, you know, you can piece together a series of facts along with some reasonable assumptions and come up with a theory about what's going to happen. The challenge with Ukraine is we really don't know if it's going to end next week or if it's going to end in two years. And until we have more clarity on that, the picture for where rates are headed is much muddier now. And I think I have to say that, being intellectually honest, that I'm less certain, and not that I was ever 100% certain, but the view that I espoused of supply bottlenecks easing, a lot of the price pressures related to that coming down, wages staying contained, inflation starting to drop off, coming toward the summer, all of those things looked like they were lining up pretty well. After Ukraine, everything's a wild card right now. And I wrote that in my post this past week. I basically said it's a big wild card. And until more water is under the bridge, we really don't know. We can postulate, but there's so many variables. And without more clarity on that, the waters are definitely muddied. Right. Okay. So if the conflict is prolonged, do you see that increasing the chances of rate hikes or decreasing? If it became a known known that, hey, this looks like it's going to drag on, how would a prolonged conflict that's unresolved affect the Bank of Canada's decision to adjust rates or not adjust them? Even then, Scott, it's hard to say for sure, because if food and energy prices stay high, that would mean inflationary pressures were stickier, and that would pretend more Bank of Canada rate hikes. But because food and energy prices pull demand away from other forms of consumer spending, would they do the work of rate hikes and would they slow the economy enough on their own that fewer rate hikes would be required? It's just at this point, it's not clear to me which of those two factors would prevail. The other thing to mention 
is we saw the bond yields plummet right after Russia invaded Ukraine. They dropped by 30 basis points, but now they've come back and are 20 basis points above where they were before Russia invaded Ukraine. Normally, you would see bond yields fall during times of geopolitical crisis as money flowed into safe haven assets like sovereign bonds, but we're not seeing that now. The government account of five-year bond yield, which is what our five-year fixed rates are priced on, was at 1.8. Russia invades Ukraine, it drops to 1.5. That makes sense. That's what you'd expect to happen, the flight to safety, the increased demand for sovereign bonds. But now it's at 2%. It's gone up 50 basis points. So that inflation narrative is really driving the market right now, even in spite of the geopolitical turmoil. I hate to say it, man. I'd love to offer more clarity, but I just don't have it in my own head right now. I think inflation is the topic du jour, and not even a geopolitical crisis is changing that at the moment. Right. And if you think about, like you said, you already touched on this. I never heard maybe this is because you're definitely smarter than me, this stuff, but demand destruction. So by having people's extra income go towards fuel and food costs, it means less money for other things, which destructs demand, right? What can destruct the demand yeah. right now. So today, if you're a mortgage borrower and, you know, I'm in a variable, I just took a new mortgage on a place. I took a variable. What is your comfort level with a variable versus a fixed given everything that's going on? I know it's a broad question, but like sure. you, Dave LaRock, you take out a mortgage today and you have a choice between a variable and a fixed, what would you personally do? Okay. So when a client asks me that, and to be clear, every client asks me that, just like every client probably asks every broker that question. And by the way, quick sidebar, some of the more prominent mortgage brokers say, well, we can't know for certain what rates will do, so you shouldn't offer an opinion. I think that's complete BS. I think when you call your financial advisor and ask them about a stock you might want to buy, the financial advisor, you expect that person to know about that stock, tell you what they think, and be more informed than you are on that topic. You don't expect that financial advisor to know with a crystal ball what's going to happen with that stock, but you expect them to know about it. You yeah, they got to have an informed opinion. They can't yeah, just be exactly. like, otherwise you might as well just be selling friends fries and burgers because right. it's a know, total cop yeah. out to say that because we don't know for sure we shouldn't try to know at all i think that's garbage and ironically some of the most prominent mortgage brokers who say that we shouldn't try to have an opinion because we can't know for certain then go on in the next sentence to tell you what their opinion is so <laughs> right. i think we do owe it to our customers to have an informed opinion not a crystal ball but an informed opinion as far as when I get that question at Scott, and you made the important distinction that it is dependent on individual borrowers, what's right for them? Are they going to lose more sleep at night worrying rates are going to go up or worrying that they're paying too much interest? But the question that I reframe when people ask me that is not what's right for you, fixed or variable. That's a separate discussion. The question that I change to is which one's likely to save money over the next five years? Which one are you likely to pay less interest on over the next five years? For my part, I am less confident in this opinion than I was before Ukraine, but I continue to believe that variable rates will save money over fixed rates over the next five years. And here's the main reason why. Over the short term, there's still lots of pressure, upward pressure on rates because of inflation. We've got Ukraine, we still have supply bottlenecks, which could drag out. We're still dealing with COVID. I mean, Hong Kong's a mess right now. We're seeing an uptick in Ontario. We're going maskless in Ontario as of Monday. Now there's this new strain called the Deltacron virus, which is a combination of Delta and Omicron. So there are lots of short-term factors that are still putting upward pressure on rates and that are still putting upward pressure on inflation. But five years is a long time. And over the next five years, at some point, I don't know if it'll be a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, but I do believe that at some point, 
The supply bottlenecks are going to ease. The pandemic is going to become endemic, and we're going to see its effects fade. And I do think that over the next several years, something is going to happen that reaches some kind of resolution in Ukraine, whether that's regime change in Russia, which I think would be ideal for the world economy, or it's a slow drawn out process by which a cold peace evolves. Don't know. But over the next five years, do I think that that'll be resolved? Yes, I do think it will end up in the rearview mirror. When those things are resolved... There are long-term displacionary factors that are going to come back to the fore and that aren't going anywhere. And there are three of them I always point to. Number one, debt. The world has way more debt than it's ever had, record levels, and debt is deflationary. Every dollar you have to use to pay your interest costs is money you can't spend in the broader economy in more productive ways. For as long as we have lots of debt outstanding and we have more of it all the time, debt is deflationary and that ain't changing. We're adding more debt all the time especially in Canada, but global. Okay? That's number one. Yeah. Demographics. We've got aging populations in all of the developed economies of the world. Birth rates are falling. And as populations age, the saving rate goes up. And when the saving rate goes up, there's more money sloshing around looking for safe hidden assets and investments that increases demand for things like bonds and drives down their yields. I don't think that's changing. We have aging populations. The older populations get... The more they save, the less they spend, the more deflationary that is, okay? And then the third one, and this is a big one, is technological advances. We have all kinds of technological advances right now that are making everything cheaper, from Uber instead of taxi cabs to Amazon hiring more robots than people. I'm not sure if people are aware of that. Amazon employs more robots than people. And when the pandemic hit and people had to lock Thank down. Thank God they're not in the mortgage business. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll take their shot. They all do. I don't yeah. think. I don't think I, the I'm mortgage, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no. But you know what? I don't think the mortgage business is as ripe for automation as everybody else thinks. You get all these fintech companies saying they're going to revolutionize the mortgage business. They get a lot of VC money. And then six months later, you never hear from them again. So right. that's a longer conversation for another day. I think what we do requires the personal touch. But that aside, when the pandemic hit, and labor basically disappeared. Companies accelerated the rate at which they were trying to figure out ways to automate and to reduce their need for labor. And as that happens, the demand for labor goes down and the supply for labor remains constant. I think technological advances are fundamentally deflationary. And you see that in industries where there have been significant technological advances. And that can be anything like Airbnb. You know, if you wanted to go to a city, you used to have to pay 350 bucks for a hotel room. Now you can get a place on Airbnb for a fraction of that. Ubers are cheaper than cabs. I'm trying to think of all the other areas where automation is lower cost. They're legion. But those three factors, debt, aging demographics, and technological advances are long-term trends that are going to be with us for decades to come. Battery length life, you know, on devices and technology, like on cars and like batteries have become longer lasting yeah. and more reliable. And so then they can use them in more places. And anyway, there's example. Yeah. yeah. Cars now last way longer than they used to. Your TV lasts longer. Everything lasts longer. And ultimately, over the next five years, the bet is which is going to last, which is going to be with us for longer the debt demographics and technological advances or the bottlenecks, the pandemic, Ukraine. My bet is that 
the stuff pushing inflation up and exerting the most upward pressure on rates is going to fade at some point over the next several years. And the stuff that's putting downward pressure on rates, the deflationary forces are gonna be with us for a long time to come. So that's why over the next five years, I continue to lean towards variable because I think that the long-term deflationary factors will reassert themselves. I don't know if it'll be in six months or two years, but I think it'll happen over the next five years. And that's why I still think when you ask me the very specific question, which will save money over the next five years, I'm still betting on variable. Right. So you'd basically reframe that question. When I talk to you, man, I always feel smarter. This is stuff I'm like, wow, I've never, but it makes sense. So debt is deflationary. Dollars that are going towards servicing debt, especially as debt costs go up, are dollars that come out of the economy for other things, right? Demographics, birth rates are falling. People spend less, typically in retirement, that's deflationary and the technological advances, that's just genius. So let me ask you this, will the increasing house prices, so we've got a supply problem, will increasing rates, what's the ripple effect on housing? Because here's my thoughts, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that raising gas prices doesn't increase the supply of gas in the ground. And just like raising interest rates does not increase the supply of housing. And there's a bunch of pressures on supply, a bunch of reasons why we have a supply problem, but what do you think will be the ripple effect if rates go up, even if it's temporarily, what that would do to the housing market. Well, to use your example, Scott, when gas prices go up, some people drive less. Yeah. So when house prices go up, maybe people spend less. I mean, that intuitively should be what happens. Typically, in a perfect market, if you were sitting in economics class, the professor at the front of the room would say, well, if borrowing costs rise, house prices should adjust to absorb those borrowing costs in a balanced equal market. So it makes sense to me that as interest rates rise, house price appreciation should slow. And whether that means it only stops rising at the rate it's rising or house prices fall, that's tough to say. It's a complicated question for a few different reasons. Number one, borrowers today are being qualified at the stress test rate, which is 5.25%. Rates have gone from 2% to 3%. So from a qualification standpoint, nobody's affordability has been impacted by rate rises in terms of what they can qualify for. Now, that may not matter when you've got a budget and you've got kids and daycare and all kinds of other costs to manage. And yes, you're paying out more each month. But when you stand there in front of my desk with your application to apply for a mortgage, your qualification rate is still 5.25%, regardless of all of the upward movements in actual rates. Does the movement up in rates change psychology? Right now, we're such a momentum-driven market. People have been buying properties on spec with the faith that prices are just going to go up forever. Does the fact that rates are higher now cause doubt to creep in? One thing I notice in my Twitter account is every real estate agent I follow on Twitter who has an offer night when no one shows up is predicting the end of the world. They're saying, this is it. This is the sign. Now, nobody showed up on my offer night. So this is it. The market has turned. Get ready, people. Fasten your seatbelts. Prices are going to crash. And obviously, that's a dramatic overreaction. And no, no, realtors those, aren't dramatic. What are you talking about? <laughs> when you read those day after day, they get a bit tiring. But the reality is, I think when you're buying in a market that's gone up by as much as our markets have gone up by, you're climbing a worry wall. You have to rationalize why it's still a good time to buy, despite the fact that prices have been screaming higher. The higher prices go, the higher that worry wall gets. The ultimate determinant of where house prices are headed becomes a psychological question more than a mathematical one based on actual movements and rates. I think the danger that the move up in rates presents the market, I think right now is more psychological 
than practical, but I don't want to diminish the well, risk. Well, the market's not rational, so that you can't dismiss the psychological impact of that for sure. Right. Um, in this market, the psychological impact is more important than the mathematical impact, at least in my mind, because the market is really being driven by psychology. When rental property investors are willing to buy rental properties with negative cap rates and they have to throw money in every month just to keep the place afloat, they're only doing it because they think house prices are going to keep rising. And there are lots of people willing to make that bet today. And to me, that is not a rational decision. And ultimately, it may take a long time for it to happen, but the market will come back into balance. And the people who have made those investments will, I think, eventually regret it. But, you know, the market can remain irrational for a lot longer than we think. And, you know, in my mind, this has gone on for long enough already and probably should have already happened. So will higher rates be the impetus that pops housing bubbles around the country? Tough to say. I mean, we're going to find out because over the short term, it looks like they're going to keep going up. So the next 12 months will give us a lot of valuable information about that question. Right. The way I've always thought about this is it's kind of like the market is like there's background music playing. When the music's going, it's a party, everybody's having fun, but then the music changes. And then all of a sudden it goes from a highly optimistic, you can't lose money to, oh my gosh, the end is near, you know, throw yourself over. And then it's so easy how the music just shifts. And then, you know, if enough stories happen like this with, you know, raising rates, the psychology will change. But as you said, practically speaking, unless the qualifying rate changes, these people were qualifying for these mortgages before, right? Maybe their monthly cash flow is slightly different, but ultimately they're still qualifying for them. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And then the other thing, I want your thoughts on this. So I thought, you know, 2008, when everything kind of the subprime crisis, people believed that was the top of the market. And I found in my market, we had a small dip for a couple of years, so very small, and then we went back up again. But the psychology was, hey, let's sell now at the top of the market and then we'll rebuy again when it's lower. So people were trying to time the market. And so it seemed to me that if that could affect supply, because if enough people believe that, right, and enough people put their house in the market, all of a sudden you shift from a seller's market to a buyer's market. Because if I'm a buyer and I got options, I'm like, I'm not in a rush. So what are your thoughts on that? With the mass psychology of people switching from this idea that, hey, maybe can I cash out now? There's no question, Scott. That's a great point. And it is happening. When I started in this business 11 years ago, Every move up buyer I worked with sold their house and used the proceeds from that sale as the down payment on the bigger place. Nowadays, every single move up buyer I talk to, the first question they ask is, is there a way I can keep my current house and refinance it and rent it out and move up to my bigger house while keeping that house in my portfolio? And a lot of them can afford to do it. People don't want to sell real estate because it's going up so much in value. But if you're a married couple with two young kids, and you own a condo as a rental that you kept when you moved up to your house or you own a smaller house before you moved to a bigger house and COVID hits and all of a sudden your tenants aren't paying and you're not getting any relief. Maybe you apply for the mortgage deferral program, but that goes away. And now you're worried about, well, that could happen again. And geez, if I get vacancies, that was never part of the plan. The vacancy rate was less than 1%. Now I got to rethink it. So there's no question the market is different in the last five years as a result of average mom and pop investors buying investment properties or keeping properties they own when they move up. Could that shift? Yes. And if it did, there would be a lot of properties hitting the market. I thought it might happen during COVID. I thought, I know rental property investors who own three or four properties don't have a lot of outside income who weren't getting any income from their tenants. And I thought those guys were going to start fire sailing their condos because they couldn't afford to make it work. They didn't have any income 
to replace the lost rental income that disappeared when their tenants couldn't afford to pay them. But it didn't happen. I mean, look, in Europe, there are mortgages that are passed on from generation to generation, and most people don't own homes. We've got a big move now with corporate buyers buying properties. Uh, former Bank Canada Governor Palaz is involved in that. If we've entered a new era where companies are going to buy real estate as long-term forms of investment, and why wouldn't they when they look at the returns that real estate is getting versus what the alternatives are getting, now you're not just competing against other end users or owner-occupiers when right. you buy a property. You've got corporations with huge deep pockets and 50-year timelines that are trying to outbid you for the house. So and of course, we've got rec levels of immigration. And if you live in a place like Toronto, where about a third of all the immigrants come, we just can't build houses fast enough to house everybody. So I can make the argument that prices are going to keep going up. But when I look at every measure of housing affordability over any kind of historical timeline, it's completely out of whack. So which of those is going to win out? I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer. If there was, somebody would have figured it out by now. Well, it's kind of like you're saying about the deflationary pressures versus the inflationary pressures, right? Like, who knows how that's all going to play out or over what timeline? Because in the short term, the inflationary pressures seem to be the concern. But you're right. Three or four years from now, those deflationary pressures could end up having pushing rates back down again. So that's interesting. Okay, so I love having these conversations with you. What's kind of your last sort of thoughts on this? I mean, we kind of went, you know, three different topics, but I feel like that's good. So any last comments? No, I guess the only thing I'd say, Scott, is that it's pretty tough right now to know what the future of rates is going to be. Short-term momentum is certainly up. And I wouldn't be afraid. As a guy who talks a lot and writes a lot about what's happening with rates on a regular basis and gets asked by every client what I think, I would just encourage people um, uh, to be candid about the fact there's a lot of uncertainty out there right now. Offer your opinion. Make it obvious to the person who's asked the question that you read about this stuff daily and you follow it and you see it as part of your job to offer an informed opinion about it. But don't be afraid to admit that there's a lot of uncertainty out there right now and present both sides of the argument. And then, you know, maybe we don't have a definitive answer right now about fixed versus variable for people. Maybe we can just outline what the trade-offs are and talk about the fact that there are forces at work, both up and down that are working against each other. And it's not clear which will win. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with expressing uncertainty if you're uncertain. And I think it's perfectly understandable that we're all a little bit more uncertain today. Right. Absolutely. This has been awesome, Dave. Thanks for coming back on and chat with me. Thanks for having me, Scott. Hey, so uh, it was an awesome conversation with Dave. Really smart dude, as you can tell. Again, I recommend you go check out his blog. He puts out a blog post every week and he's active on Twitter. A very educated guy, understands the interest rates, economy, how everything works. And uh, if you're listening to this and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I get my business more organized? I tell you what I would do if I were you. Go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com, set up a free power search account and you can power search all of our past episodes by the keyword it's amazing it's free go get that done you'll totally love it in this upcoming segment i talked to paul from magenta about the no doc program this program will blow your mind when you're like oh, i can't believe the stuff that they'll do with this so check it out they're currently only in ontario but maybe if you reach out to them and say hey, can you guys come to other provinces maybe they will so check out this segment with paul hey paul welcome to ask the experts hey good to be back Hey, man, so we were chatting before we turn on the recorder about a pretty unique program you guys have called the No Doc Program, and it's pretty interesting. So why don't you explain to me what it is, and we'll jump into some of the details of it so brokers can know when they can apply this solution to their clients. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. The No Doc product that we have at Magenta, it was designed specifically to assist and help BFS clients 
people who have more or less of a cash business, a little bit harder for them to kind of get their ducks in a row when it comes to their paperwork or verify their income. So this product, we kind of simplify that process for them and we make it very user-friendly for them. It doesn't require any income verification when applying for a mortgage with us. Now, all the other details in regards to a purchase are required, such as a purchase and sale, confirmation of down payment and appraisal, things of that nature. But the actual income verification is not required on the no-doc product that we offer. Right. So basically, purchase agreement, appraisal, down payment, they need an application to who this person is, and then a credit bureau. Yes. And then, so can you give me an example of somebody who would fit this type of product? So again, we think of you guys as like B minus, just outside of the box. Mm -hmm. So who's an example of a type of client that would fit perfectly for this product? You know, we recently had a client who was a truck driver and he had contracts. He wasn't protesting, was he? I'm just kidding. We should not go there. We're going to keep this totally (laughs) (laughs) non-political. Let's not go there. We don't know. We didn't ask. Sorry. I don't think he was. I hope he wasn't. (laughs) But he was a truck driver and he had contracts with Rona, Home Depot, and Longos. And, you know, due to COVID, it was hard for him to really piece together his income. Although we knew that his income was there just based on his tenure as a truck driver. And, you know, when we looked at the bureau, although we don't rely on the credit bureau, we did look at it just to see kind of what type of trade lines he had. And it it made sense with what he was describing to us. So in that particular case, we were able to facilitate his request, which was, you know, just over a million dollar purchase, just putting 20% down. And, you know, we were able to kind of come in at a starting rate of 364, along with a starting fee of 375. Right. Yeah. We were talking about this before. You told me 364. Like, I'm just floored by that because... I've had prime mortgages back in 2008 that were 5.79 fixed. Never again, never again will you suck me into a fixed rate mortgage if you're listening to this, lenders. But that's pretty amazing. So then this guy basically, because documentation, he's self-employed and you're able to get him like basically $800,000, which is crazy. And at a rate that's like would have been considered a prime rate at one time, right? Like that would have been a prime lending rate. So is there other examples, you know, types of clients where this would fit? I was like, when they have in the back of their mind, they can think of, oh, this could be a product for that. So what other kind of people would be a fit for this no-doc program? Anybody who is BFS and, you know, they operate a cash business, will definitely entertain their scenario or their situation and see if it fits. But again, if you're a truck driver, maybe you're a barber, a hairdresser, I'm just thinking of all the BFS. And then how, okay, so that's there. good. So basically these people, a lot of cash business stuff, what do you look for to prove BFS? So like, how do I know that somebody is like a truck driver or, you know, whatever? Like for instance, my daughter does my wife's hair extensions, but she's only 12. She's not looking for a mortgage <laughs> yet. But uh, like, how, how would you prove somebody's BFS? <laughs> she does a good um, job too, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, we do have various products in which we can do that. So we have our low doc product, which is just, you know, an NOA confirming that there's no taxes owing, you know, and then we also offer the stated income product, which is verifiable through bank statements, business license, things of that nature, as well as the NOA. But I mean, for the no doc product, it's really simplified in the sense that the story that we get from the broker upon submission is where the approval lies. And it has to make sense. That's the key thing for you guys. So this is a question I have. So if I use low doc versus stated versus no doc, how does that affect the rate? Does it change the rate at all? It doesn't impact the rate. The rate actually stays the same starting at 364. What it impacts is the fee. So with the no doc at 375, that is the higher end of the spectrum for the fee. And then respectively, as we scale back, so the low doc 
is not as risky as a pure no doc. So that's a, you know, a reduction in the fee by 25 basis points all the way down to a stated income deal, which is another reduction by 25 basis points, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's really just risk mitigation. You know, verifiable income is less risky, therefore the fees lower right. uh, versus pure no doc. Uh, it's a bit of a riskier model. So the fees higher on that. So if you get a broker who's like trying to figure out, okay, where does my client fit? Who they reach out to? Because I would assume you can't change this. Like, can you change it when you send it in? Can you send it in one way and then be like, I should have sent it this way? Or what would you recommend? So I'm just thinking if I'm a mortgage broker and I'm like, I'm not sure which way this works. What should they do? If you're a mortgage broker, definitely reach out to our sales team. We're more than happy to assist, have that conversation, have the discussion. We do recognize that sometimes upon submission of a file that there are better options for the client. So we are flexible in that regard. It may come in as a low doc and then, you know, essentially be a no doc, right? right. It's dependent upon, again, the story that the broker is able to provide and the situation of the client. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So is this for principal residents only, or what is the type of property that you guys would look at for these programs? I think this is probably like the wildest part about the product is that first off, it's for our urban centers. It's got to be in a market that you guys are correct. Yeah. But we will apply the no doc to all facilities in terms of properties that we offer. So it could be residential. It could be for a rental. It could be for a student rental. It could be for a hold co. We're able to facilitate that. Obviously the pricing will change on that specifically. So if it's a rental, you're looking at an increase in the rate by 50 basis points. So you're looking at a rental of 414. Right. Basically, it's sort of like this teeter-totter, depending on the property, and then the amount of documentation will affect the pricing on rate and or fees. Correct. So what I would suggest for you guys as mortgage brokers, unless you're experienced at this, it's one thing. But if you're not, I would probably recommend that you just reach out to you guys. And that way you can figure out what's going to be optimum in order to get it approved. And you want to make it as least expensive as possible for your client, but also it needs to fit the box, fit the guidelines. So Magenta Investments, you guys are the largest MIC in Canada. You really own the category of B minus. So if people want to reach out to you, I recommend just email brokers at magentainvestment.ca. That's Magenta Investment, no S, and Paul and your team will pick it up. And then you can figure out the scenario that fits best, whether it's the no doc, low doc, stated, and then the property type, and then you can get a plan on how to present that too. And maybe one of our future Ask the Experts, Paul, will talk about how to present these to clients. I think brokers would really find that valuable to know how do I communicate this particular product pricing stuff to my borrower. I think that'd be a great episode we could do. Yeah, I think that it would be informative and educational. I'd love to do that. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Paul. Good chat with you. All right, take care. All right. So fantastic conversations today with Dave and Paul. Really enjoyed them. And, you know, Dave, as I said, wicked smart dude. And Paul, this program is pretty cool. So you go check that out. Reach out to them. Tell them you heard about it from us. And yeah, thanks again for being a listener. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love you to go leave a podcast review. It helps us get in front of more people than iTunes. You can even do that in Spotify now. Check that out. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.